versus Daryl Jones, 23-1816. Ms. McKee, please submit that uh, on the briefs to the court for decision. And would you call the first case for argument? First case for oral argument on Thursday, October the 19th, 2023, case number 21-3454, and also case 21-3461, both from the District of North Dakota, United States versus Stephen Pinto. Mr. Brennan. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, my name is Hank Brennan on behalf of appellant Stephen Barros Pinto. The appellant's um, appeal focuses primarily on three central arguments. The first is that the venue in North Dakota was not appropriate. And I'll first argue with the court's permission that venue is inappropriate and therefore the conviction should be vacated. I do recognize the government's brief Smith versus United States that the appropriate remedy is not at this point recognized as um, acquittal. Secondly, that the convictions for the 846 and the 963 are both uh, duplicative. They both are lesser included offenses of the CCE 848 and therefore the court should either uh, vacate the convictions on the 846 and the 963 or vacate the conviction on the 848. And finally, we argue that the money laundering conspiracy, even under the plain error review, if the court accepts that, should be vacated because the indictment was unnaturally vague and did not provide the appropriate information to provide a, a fair uh, notice and hearing and trial on the issues. If I may proceed, I'll begin with the first issue of venue. It seems that the... Um, evidence that the government would rely upon to show venue in North Dakota was wholly um, fixed to a drug deal between Mr. Cerrone, who is the distributor in Canada, and a gentleman in Portland, Mr. Hubbard, who then sent it to North Dakota, to Mr. Jensen, and ultimately to the consumer who died, Mr. Henke. Mr. Cerrone was dealing with Mr. Hubbard back in 2013 and 2014. The overt act at issue were drugs that were sent in December of 2015. Pardon me, December 2014. They were then given to the deceased who died in January 2015. At this point, Mr. Pinto is not alleged to be part of any conspiracy, whether it's a single conspiracy or multiple, multiple conspiracy. He's not even on the map back in January 2015. After Mr. Henke's death, police then engage in undercover buys with Mr. Cerrone, and he then sends drugs to North Dakota. The court was asked to give an instruction on multiple conspiracies, but more importantly, uh, the defense asked the court to exclude any information or evidence regarding the North Dakota sale, the death of Mr. Henke, or any involvement in North Dakota. Thus, there'd be an absence of evidence to show venue. And over the defense objections, the, gov the uh, court allowed the government to introduce uh, tons, uh, numerous witnesses, numerous pieces of evidence that had nothing to do with Mr. Pinto or his involvement in any conspiracy. The conspiracy uh, is wholly separate because the supplier, Mr. Cerrone, um, was not interrelated or dealing with Mr. Pinto. He did not rely on Mr. Pinto or Mr. Pinto's associate, Mr. Gomes. 
In fact, testimony at trial, Mr. Cerrone concedes that the interaction with Mr. Hubbard that led to North Dakota had nothing to do with Mr. Gomes or Mr. Pinto. They didn't provide any support. They didn't provide any help. They were of no knowledge of this totally and wholly separate conspiracy. How do we separate this one out from a lot of traditional drug conspiracies where the idea is that you say as little as possible, you share as little information as, as possible, just what you need, and that really a lot of, in a lot of drug conspiracies we see come through um, the district court and appeal, people can't name the other folks that really are you know, sort of indisputably a part of the same organization. What's the distinguishing factor or factors here uh, that makes this case different? Given that there is Mr. Cerrone and Mr. Barry sort of at the top conducting, uh, conducting their actions sort of in a similar fashion to, to loop in Mr. Hubbard and I think you pronounced Mr. Gomes um, in, in the same fashion. There are two really distinct lines of demarcation that separate this conspiracy from a traditional chain conspiracy. I acknowledge that there is quite a lot of vagaries in conspiracies. What is different here? The first issue is that the distribution of the drugs that gives jurisdiction, that overt act between Cerrone, Berry, and Hubbard, occurs in December of 2014. Mr. Pinto is not even alleged to have begun distributing drugs until July of 2015, six would, months later. On that theory, would, would um, Mr. Gomes and Mr. Hubbard, in, on your approach, be part of the same because of the timing? In other words, Mr. Pinto joins up with Mr. Gomes, not Mr. Hubbard, but it, as I understood it, Gomes and Hubbard join up at roughly the same period of time. Well, not to defend Mr. Gomes, but you know, <laughs> I, I do not see... Gomes is part of the conspiracy with Mr. Cerrone and Mr. Hubbard. Um, one, because well, the timing is different. Mr. Gomes is involved with drug dealing with Mr. Cerrone at the same time Mr. Hubbard is, but there's absolutely no connection between the two. It's not simply they don't know each other's names. It's not simply that they didn't uh, meet each other. These are two totally separate and distinct operations by Mr. Cerrone. Mr. Cerrone is dealing to Mr. Hubbard wholly separately from Mr. Gomes, and that's conceded. Mr. Gomes clearly in his testimony says, I knew nothing about North Dakota. Uh, the people in North Dakota, Mr. Hubbard and Jensen, concede they know nothing about Mr. Cerrone's distribution network, and Mr. Cerrone himself insists that uh, Gomes or Pinto have nothing to do with his sale to Hubbard. So that first connection is not a link. It ends there. Um, equally importantly is uh, that timing that Mr. Pinto is not even on the scene until July 2015. And in July 2015, the government doesn't um, neatly define what his role is other than distributing pills. The interaction with Mr. Cerrone by sending legal fees, uh, receiving imported drugs from China, that all happens later. So there's a large amount of time. So when we look at the totality of circumstances, there's a lot of guesswork in conspiracy cases, but um, there's not a lot of guesswork about the fact that these are distinct and separate because the witnesses specifically testified to it and no facts support it. At no time in the trial could the government ever suggest that Mr. Pinto knew anything about North Dakota before his arrest. Nothing. Nothing about Mr. Cerrone's distribution network uh, before he became involved with Mr. Gomes. 
And again, um, I don't think Mr. Gomes bootstraps that back in by saying he independently had um, some type of operation at the same time somebody else did. By that rationale. He knew that there, I mean, there was evidence that he knew that there was a network. He knew there was this supplier. Um, and that somehow someone was directing the uh, drugs, the pills to be shipped to Gomes and Pinto, right? Uh, if we're referring to... Does it really matter that, they, that he didn't, maybe he didn't know uh, identities? Not knowing identities really doesn't seem to be a, a strong big factor. That, that I don't think is, is the issue. If we're talking about before Mr. Pinto entered any conspiracy in July 2015, Mr. Gomes knew he was in a conspiracy with Mr. Cerrone and whoever the ultimate producer was. But that doesn't put him in a conspiracy with Mr. Hubbard in Portland as part of Cerrone's network. Separately, Mr. Pinto, his connection is even more absent. He is not in any conspiracy whatsoever prior to July 2015. And at any time before his arrest, knows nothing about North Dakota. And so the government could not produce any evidence of any knowledge, agreement, interaction, interdependence between Mr. Pinto and Mr. Cerrone as it relates to Mr. Hubbard. If Mr. Pinto is not part of the conspiracy, doesn't know anything about it, never learns anything about it, and that should not have been admitted at evidence at trial, there would be no venue issue for the jury to have considered venue wouldn't have existed. This would have been a case in North Carolina or Rhode Island. Was there evidence that Gomes told Pinto that, the, that their source was in Canada? A witness? And then in Panama? Um, there are three witnesses who testified that after July 2015 that Mr. Pinto became aware that the source was generally from Canada. And so there is no doubt um, that there was evidence of this trial long after the Cerrone-Hubbard connection, because Hubbard is now arrested in July, uh, January 2015, long after he learns that generally there is a connection in Canada. I am not disputing that Mr. Pinto distributed drugs and that he was in a conspiracy with Mr. Gomes and that he was in a conspiracy with the supplier. Even though he didn't know Mr. Cerrone, he doesn't need to know Mr. Cerrone's name. But he's part of that conspiracy, no doubt. And then the unknown person who's distributing from China, he's part of that conspiracy as well. I concede that. But he's not part of the Berry or Cerrone Hubbard network. He has nothing whatsoever to do with it. There's not even an inference in the evidence. In fact, the evidence is all opposite. Counsel, quickly, it's a preponderance standard, right? It's a preponderance for the jury. However, the judge, respectfully, great respect for the judge, mm -hmm. made error in even allowing the testimony in to begin with. So it's not simply an analysis whether... Um, the jury could have met that preponderance standard. Okay. Clearly, the jury couldn't have because there's no overt act that... And then this happen. doesn't affect count six, right? It doesn't. I think I argued right. in my brief yes, that it proceed. did. I can yeah. see that I overreached no, no. on proceed. that. Can I, can I back up on the, um, this, the preponderance of the evidence issue? So if the district court denies the motion, your motion on, on venue, and sends it to the jury, what... And, and then and you're... Isn't your argument about the evidence that shouldn't, should not have been admitted at trial just simply directly linked to the venue issue? In other words, it still remains preponderance to Judge Benton's question? I'm not sure I understood your answer that there's a distinction in the, in the standard. So the judge, 
I believe, independently can assess whether the venue was proper, and he denied my motion. It is not solely a jury question, although the cases have said that a jury can consider this, a judge can have a jury consider this in the standards of preponderance of the evidence. A judge still could have excluded all of the 404B evidence that never should have come in if it wasn't relevant. A judge still could have given uh, Mr. Pinto a required finding of not guilty on the venue issue, despite the fact that the jury didn't. And what, what standard would the, would the district court uh, apply there? Are you suggesting it's different than what the jury would have applied? Well, I objected virtually to everything in this case from the beginning, um, pre-trial, during every witness, as carefully as I could. So I think the standard is not plain error. No, no, I'm sorry, not our review. I apologize. The, um, the, when the district court's reviewing your motion, and you're saying, well, the district court could have ruled and excluded this evidence, I guess my point is, what it, how is the district court, in your view, looking at that? Is it considering it well by a preponderance of the evidence, or what, what is the district court applying? In, in, in well, I haven't argument? found a case specifically on point what that analysis should be, so... Um, Frankly, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure your honors do. I don't. <laughs> but the, um, at the very least, even if the court used a preponderance of evidence standard, this wasn't a debatable amount of evidence where there are two sides and it was um, the weight of the evidence. There was an absence, a clear absence of evidence. So it doesn't matter from our perspective what standard is used. Any standard would be enough. Um, if there are further questions on this issue, I'm more than eager to answer them. Otherwise, I'll move on to the next issue. Uh, I'd like to move on to the double jeopardy issue. I see that is more uh, important at this stage. Um, respectfully, uh, the government concedes that there is a um, lesser included of the 846. I appreciate that acknowledgement. Now, I is also- the appropriate response for us to do something or leave it to the district court's discretion? I think that the... Between counts one and and, uh, two. I think that the court should vacate count two as well, and and here's why. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. When we're looking only at one and three. Um, I believe that the court vacates count one and then sends it back to the district court for resentencing. I'm asking the court to also vacate count two. Yes, but before we leave one and three... No, no, before we leave one and three, you read our cases to say that that we have no role in deciding, once we say it's a lesser-included offense, uh, as you all agree, that we have no role, we leave it to the discretion of the district court which one they do, one or three. Um, I don't want to be presumptuous and say what your court's role is, but I think that what I... What do you think our cases say our role is? That's what I'm trying to say. I think your cases say that it's supposed to be sent back to the trial judge and that he can make the assessment before or after, and having not made it before, he makes the assessment after the count is vacated and then decides. Of course, if he takes away three, then you've got no argument on two, right? That's where I'm going. Yes, if he takes away three, I think one and two stand. If he takes away one, I think he also needs to take away two. Okay. And so I think either one and two should remain or three. And the reason why is... Does two depend on how this was charged and how it was tried to the jury? I, I think As opposed tried- to some theoretical comparison of the statute. I think how it was tried to the jury is the most compelling factor. And not even how it was charged. Some um, of the cases read like it has charged. The charge itself um, raises concerns and support for my argument as well. The government points to the fact that it specifically articulates that the jury must find the person to be guilty of count one, which is the distribution. Right. Um, but the language it uses, I think, is very immorsive. No, not in the indictment. Um, 
It says, in 846, including but not limited to violations alleged in the conduct of the superseding indictment. That could mean anything. So while it specifically articulates count one, it doesn't preclude count two as part of the jury's consideration. It says um, the above-described violations, and it doesn't say what they are. It just says um, count one and then, and then um, include about limited other violations alleged. Now, in this case, the evidence was admitted and there was never any instruction to separate the evidence. In fact, the evidence really merged between importation and distribution. Notably, if you look at the government's closing, the government argues a number of people who could be the predicate for underlings in a CCE, and they name about 10 people. Um, they name people who were involved in importation and in um, distribution, for example, they named Jennifer Kamara, who was the girlfriend of Mr. Pinto. She received a box from China. She had no other relevance in this case, nothing to do with distribution, um, but she is a witness to the importation. They specifically name her as one of the people in the CCE. Is this helped. their argument, counsel? In, in closing argument. Yeah. And so it demonstrates well, how confusing the evidence was at trial where they blurred all of the evidence between importation and distribution. So I think based on their indictment and based on the jury instruction, it wasn't limited to simply distribution. They articulated distribution, but they did not limit it in any way. So the jury was free to consider any of the evidence under CCE for any of the factors, and, and I think they did. And so I think because of that, because the indictment and instructions were not specific enough, and because of the way the government tried the case by blurring the evidence, uh, I, I think both uh, count one and count two, you can't distinguish between the two of them. Um, I do have two and a half minutes. At two minutes, I'd ask the court um, if they're inclined to allow me to save that two minutes for rebuttal. You certainly may. I'll mention just with my 26 seconds the issue of uh, Oh, I'm the, sorry. The money, I thought you were doing it now. The, Go ahead. Uh, watch the clock. The money laundering <laughs> indictment. Um, I'll simply iterate my arguments in that uh, it doesn't provide specific notice. It allowed the government at trial to basically rove into what the money laundering was. There certainly was a tremendous amount of evidence of money laundering during trial, but it was never articulated with whom and what it was. So even as I stand here today, I can see there was uh, ample evidence of money laundering, but what the indictment um, was charging him with, I don't know. And what evidence was used to support that conviction, I don't know. And so inevitably, does Mr. Pinto stand in a position where he could be then charged again? Is double jeopardy implicated? Did it include the money in his parents' wall that was found after the indictment? They used that for money laundering as consideration for conviction, but um, had nothing to do with the indictment because it was never supplemented. Uh, and that's my argument, Your Honors, and I'll reserve the minute and 24 seconds if I may. Thank you. You certainly may. Thank you. Ms. Ellickson. Good morning, and may it please the court. Jenny Ellickson for the United States. I'd like to start with the venue issue. Uh, first of all, I, I think that the, um, the, the single distribution in December or January, December 2014 or, or January 2015 from Oregon to North Dakota would have been enough 
for venue, even though Mr. Pinto joined the conspiracy later. But to be clear, that was not the only connection that this case had to North Dakota, because later in mid-May 2015, after uh, Hubbard, the West Coast part of the operation, had been uh, arrested after an undercover agent took over his online identity and was communicating with Cerrone. They negotiated an additional importation of fentanyl into North Dakota. That package arrived in North Dakota in mid-May, and the evidence also allowed the jury to find that Pinto was a member of the conspiracy at that point. Well, how, how do you factor in that that was conducted by an undercover agent, that that wasn't a member of the conspiracy who uh, sent in something to North Dakota. Is that grounds for venue? Well, it was Cerrone who, who handled the importation. It was, it was at, at, he had negotiated it with the undercover. So yes, it was, it, there, there was, you know, impetus from the undercover to have it, but it shows that Cerrone, from his perspective, that, that an, an importation into North Dakota was part of part of what he was doing. Does it matter whose idea it was to send it to North Dakota? I, I just found that curious that that, that, a, that a, a, an undercover agent's actions directed at one location uh, could, could establish venue. And I had never thought about it before. Yes. No, I mean, I think it's, well, it, it isn't the only thing that we're relying on here. We are also relying on the earlier distribution, which is why the case, you know, was already of pre-existing interest to North Dakota. Uh, if there, you know, I think it, it might be a little bit, it would, it would be an interesting question if there had been no connection to North Dakota before that and an agent, an enterprising agent in North Dakota decided, you know, I want to make this a North Dakota case. Because it wasn't Cerrone who, Cerrone sent it to Hubbard, who then sent it to North Dakota, yes. right? So that would have been Cerrone's first, as far as the evidence goes, the first time he would have shipped into North Dakota. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. But I think if you, you know, look at the evidence, what the, what the jury could reasonably infer from the evidence is that Cerrone just wanted to get these drugs into the United States. He viewed the United States as a very profitable uh, opportunity for fentanyl sales, and he was looking for people in the United States to get the, the drugs to and to, you know, distribute it in large quantities. And he succeeded in that. And so, I mean, I think from his perspective, North Dakota, Oregon, Rhode Island, Florida, it's all one and the same. What he wanted, what the goal of the conspiracy was, was to get this fentanyl into the United States and to distribute it. Uh, so... Yes, and I think, but more generally, the, the idea that um, Mr. Pinto had to be part of the conspiracy at the point when the North Dakota actions happened, you know, that, that's not the way this type of conspiracy law works, because if you join an ongoing conspiracy, you're, you're buying in to the agreement, and you are kind of, uh, you, you've, you know basically the general contours of what you're getting into, and you are then responsible for everything that the conspiracy did before you joined, maybe not the substantive things in a, in a Pinkerton way, but for, with respect to the scope of the conspiracy. Isn't this a little bit different, though, when you're talking about basically coastal activity, you know, one coast to the other? Usually when we're talking about a, a conspiracy and you don't need to know the names or the identity of other folks, but you generally understand a regional operation and what's going on. Um, and this, because it's on the Internet and anybody could sign up, sort of the idea that, you would think through this this notion of somebody on the West Coast 
doing similar conduct. I, it has a different feel, maybe because of the internet, maybe because of the vast geographical separation between these folks. Uh, can you speak to that? A bit? Sure, sure. And and one one point that I also want to make that uh, is that these these operations, at least in Saron's mind, were one and the same, because during conversations again with the undercover agent, he actually mentioned to the undercover agent in connection with the, the North Dakota purchase. He said, "This shipment is going to be coming from Canada, but I have three hundred thousand pills in the United States, and you know if I send you future shipments, they're going to be coming from the United States." And he was referring, he, he later uh, testified, he was referring to, to Gomes's manufacturing on the East Coast. So from, from Cerrone's perspective, these were unified. Um, this, this was kind of all a single operation. From Pinto's perspective, I think Pinto knew that this was a, this was a large in scope geographic operation. Pinto himself was uh, distributing pills down to North Carolina. He knew that uh, Gomes was doing it in Florida. Eventually, Pinto developed a Minnesota connection, uh, which he, he told one of his inmates around, uh, about his fellow inmates about, um, where there was somebody he knew in Minnesota who he's, he had started to send pills to as well. So I don't think this is a circumstance where Pinto was, um, you know, the jury would, would infer Pinto only wanted to do a local operation. I think it's clear that Pinto was interested as well in the conspiracy's goal of this um, operation having a, a broad geographic sweep. He may not have known that it had gone specifically to North Dakota, but he didn't have to know that. He knew, uh, he knew the scale as in a general fashion of the operation. And, and in fact, tried to build it out further himself. So I think that indicates that this, he, he, was, he was not kind of analogous to a local um, street-level dealer who was operating only in a single city. He, he himself was operating in a very large area. Um, Council, how long in months was it between the control buy in 2014 and when Pinto joined the conspiracy in the government's view? So the controlled buy was in mid-May 2015, and uh, transcript page 1429 is when Gomes talks about his recollection of when Pinto joined the conspiracy. And what Gomes says is he, he recalled that it was early 2015, and he said definitely before June of 2015, because and he, I think he elaborates on this in his testimony, he remembered that Pinto's birthday was in June of 2015, and Pinto was already by that point celebrating the success of the operation. Uh, so, so I think the jury could infer from the fact that Gomes said that Pinto was involved by early 2015 and before June of 2015, that by mid-May 2015, when this controlled buy happened, that Pinto was already in, um, had already joined the, the trafficking operation. And of course, his, his own activities increased. He, he became more seriously involved as, as time went on. Um, and he was personally, you know, we've been talking a lot about the distribution, but there's also the importation piece of this, which is another factor that distinguishes this from a regional, you know, local drug dealing operation. Pinto was personally, you know, facilitating the importation and, you know, encouraging the importation of kilogram quantities of fentanyl from China, knowing that they were coming from China and that their supplier um, who was connecting them was had been originally based in Canada. So this is not a, a small-scale operation. This is a um, – he, he knew that he was getting involved in a fully international operation. 
Uh, I'm happy to answer further questions about the venue, um, but if, if, if the court has no more questions on, on that point, I'll, I can move on to the um, double jeopardy issue. So with respect to counts one and three, we've conceded that um, those are duplicative for purposes of the double jeopardy clause, and so it would be appropriate for this court to remand to the district court with instructions to dismiss one of those counts. And I think that's what this court's precedent indicates would be the appropriate remedy. The district court can, you know, assess and determine, you know, which count is, is appropriate to vacate based on its standpoint as the sentencing judge. Um, with respect to count two, though, uh, that count was charged, um, that was that was not one of the, that was not a basis for count three, the continuing uh, criminal enterprise count, because the indictment specifically said, and I have it in front of me, uh, it charged Mr. Pinto with engaging in a uh, continuing criminal enterprise uh, by violating at least a series of statutes that are all distribution statutes, um, in that he violated those statutes, including but not limited to the violations alleged in count one of the indictment, uh, the above-described violations were and are part of a continuing series of violations. The violations, I think, when it says the above-described violations, it's referring to that paragraph where it says that he violated Title 21, United States Code, Sections 812, 813, 841A1, and 846. Those are all distribution. That's the, those are distribution offenses. And that, that's also what the district court's instructions required the jury to find. It said you have to find that he... What about your opponent's argument that that's not true of the jury instructions? I heard that from him. Yes. No, the jury instructions also required uh, required the jury to find that, that he was guilty of count one um, for the CCE. There was no requirement that the jury find that he, was, he had committed, he had conspired to uh, import drugs. It said that he had to, he had to violate count one. Um, and I, I can pull up the language of that instruction as well if the court is interested. Um, yes, please. Yes. So it says this is on page 15 of the instructions. Uh, the, the first thing that the jury had to find is that the defendant committed the offense charged in count one. Uh, and then two, the offense was part of a continuing series of three or more related felony violations of the Federal Controlled Substances Act. Um, but it didn't. But that did not require the jury to find that the violations were importation offenses. Uh, and it is true that some of the conspirators involved in this were involved in importation. But the importation and the distribution activities were sort of hand in glove. One couldn't happen without the other. You needed to get the drugs in order to be able to distribute them. In this case, they were getting the drugs through importation. And so, but. They were then distributing the drugs. So, so a co-conspirator who helps with the importation is also facilitating the distribution um, by helping to procure the drugs that they can distribute. Uh, so I don't think that there is there is a clear line between this. And in fact, in the Supreme Court's decision in Albernez, the Supreme Court says you can have a single agreement to both import and distribute. And that can be basically one agreement, but Congress has decided to charge those in separate statutes, um, and that they and they, this, the statutes are okay for double jeopardy purposes because each requires proof of a fact that the other does not. To commit a conspiracy to distribute drugs, you have to agree to distribute them, and for importation, you have to agree to import them, and those are 
not, you, you don't have to prove that for each of the other, even though it may be the same overall agreement. Um, so I think that even though there is a factual overlap in, in the proof here, it's not an overlap that actually goes to, to the double jeopardy analysis. Um, I'm also, I'm happy to answer further questions on that issue, but I can also move to the sufficiency of the indictment. Um, so this, as a threshold matter, I think we, we view this claim as waived because Mr. Pinto did not make a pretrial motion uh, to challenge the sufficiency of the indictment. He did not request a bill of particulars. He, d he didn't raise any complaints about the indictment um, in the district court proceedings, at least not the complaints he's raising here. Is that an open question in this circuit? The, yes, this court this court has issued decisions both ways, and so I recognize that this well, court. Well, Pickens. I was quoting the Pickens case. Go yes, ahead. exactly. Yes. And this yeah, court has you, this court has recently recognized that it has decisions going both ways. We think that as as the court indicated in Pickens, that waiver is the better the better way of looking at it. But I, I recognize that this court has decisions that have gone the other way, and so uh, it would be. Can you reconcile them with some sort of good faith? or good, I'm sorry, I said the wrong thing, good cause a sort of a showing required or something like that? Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure if that, if that answers all of the, I, I, I'm not sure that all of the plain error cases did a good cause analysis. There may have been kind of more of, an, you know, atmospheric good cause in those cases than there was here. Um, so that, that might be a way to distinguish them. But even if this court goes the, the route that the court went in Pickens and says, you know, we realize we have cases going both ways. And so we'll just, you know, say, even though we think waiver is the better answer, we apply, we'll apply plain error review. Certainly, um, we, we think that we prevail on, we easily prevail on plain error review. Uh, the focus of Mr. Pinto's complaint is the idea that the indictment was uh, insufficient because it failed to identify his money laundering co-conspirators by name. Uh, but he hasn't pointed to a case, and I'm not aware of a case, where a court has said that that's that's something that must be must be included in a money laundering conspiracy indictment, and so absent case law like that, I don't think there's any way um, to that he he can or has satisfied the requirement of plain error review that it be a clear and obvious error. I think we also believe it's not an error at all uh, because, in fact, this court has issued cases in the drug conspiracy con context that make it clear that you don't have to name your the conspirators for an indictment to be. Uh, sufficient to put the defendant on notice. And we also think we prevail on the third and fourth prongs of plain error review. Mr. Pinto was, was clearly prepared to answer the allegations at trial. He put on a vigorous defense. He hasn't identified any way in which um, his concerns about the indictment might have prejudiced him. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to answer further questions about that or any of the issues. Um, further questions? Further questions? No, thank you for your argument here today. Thank you very much. And we ask that the court uh, remand on the count one and three issue, but otherwise affirm. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ellickson. Mr. Brennan. Thank you. From Boston, I speak very quickly. I'm going to try to speak even more quickly, so my apologies. Uh, control by is in May 2015. This is before anybody says Mr. Pinto was involved in a conspiracy or was selling pills or had any involvement whatsoever. May 2015. Um, the government looks at the June 2015 testimony on cross-examination. Gomes is unsure, said it might have been around July. Either way, after May. And so um, the point that you raise is something that I considered strongly during trial. 
it seemed as though law enforcement manufactured venue in this case because they didn't have it and all the resources were here. That's why venue is important. It takes somebody from their home, from their resources, puts them in a different part of the country where they might not be acclimated, they might be seen as differently. That's the danger of venue. That's what they did here, and it, it, there's no connection to Mr. Pinto. There's no doubt he was in a large-scale operation, but it was for him running down. Just like I asked Mr. Hubbard, did you ever get charged up? Did you get charged with Cerrone's crimes with other people? And everybody answered no. They got charged down. Everybody did except for Mr. Pinto. He got charged up for something he wasn't involved in. There was no agreement. There was no agreement. We can talk about the size of it, the depth of it, the dangerousness of it. There was never an agreement with Pinto to have an understanding or agree with Cerrone to distribute with anybody he was receiving and he was selling. Thank you for your time, Your Honors. And before I forget, thank you for your service and acceptance of the appointment under the Criminal Justice Act. My pleasure. Okay. Uh, case number, uh, sorry, cases. Uh, the two cases, 21-3454 and 21-3461, are submitted for decision by the court.